although at this point in time the non-material meditative absorptions may be a little bit out of reach yet, I will explain them nevertheless because it does often happen that one touches upon one or the other accidentally and if one meditates regularly. And if that is the case, it is extremely useful to know what one is doing. Again, the same idea of if the experience is not understood, it's useless. Just like if a child putting the hand on a hot stove and getting burnt but not realizing that that's due to the hot stove, we'll do it again. So if we don't understand our experiences, they don't do us the slightest bit of good. And not only that we can touch upon them accidentally, but also they are the progression of meditation. And since it is helpful to know these progressions in a case where you're not constantly with a teacher. If you are constantly with a teacher, you don't have to know anything beyond what is happening at the moment. But if there's no teacher for you all the time, it is helpful to know what can happen and what is the progression of meditation. And again, the transcendental dependent arising has these steps as their cause and effect steps. So we can see that this is not just um, separated instances but these are cause and effects. The second meditative absorption is an effect of the cause of the first. The first is an effect of having been able to gain joy and gratitude and devotion because of having a spiritual path and having seen that dukkha is and cannot separate it from existence. This is an important point we're always trying to separate the dukkha experiences from our existence. It's impossible. We cannot do that. Dukkha and existence belong together, and they are. They just are. So having having started with that which is, namely dukkha, as a cause for our spiritual progress, and then that devotion and love arising with the joy, being able to get into the um, experience of a concentrated state, each progressive absorption is, of course, an effect of the previous one. Now, the first four have five factors which also progressively disappear. As the meditative absorption gets deeper, the factors become less. So in the beginning we have five aspects and 
in the second absorption, we lose the initial application and sustained application because having been able to get into the first one and stay there, we don't have to start all over again. Every time we fall out, of course, we do have to start over. Then in the third one, we no longer have any of the physical, the pity, any of the physical uh, pleasant feelings. There is nothing but the contented aspect, which is one-pointedness, which is constantly there. One-pointedness is the overriding factor all through the um, meditation. The one-pointedness together with the uh, joy of having contentment and peace. The fourth one has only the one-pointedness left. And having only the one-pointedness left, the next four are extensions of this one. They are just a broadening experience and they are a broadening experience of expansiveness of the mind which are particularly geared towards insight. I think it is also necessary maybe to repeat this. We can gain insight slowly and gently, little by little, and I will talk about that at another time, also with just having what is technically called momentary concentration. And every one of you will know that momentary concentration. You're staying on the breath for a moment. Well, that momentary concentration is something we do use in everyday life. We can't make a phone call without momentary concentration. I have that many numbers to punch, you've got to concentrate. We know that momentary concentration. And although it is supposed to lead one to insight, it cannot lead one all the way. However, if the concentration becomes stronger than momentary, the absorptions may not actually take place in their um, full experience. And insight can arise, but not only is it far more difficult, it is unpleasant. Because real insight changes one's whole outlook completely and utterly around. Nothing that we have ever thought to be true, thought to be important, thought to be real, remains the same. And if the mind is going at that cold, so to say, without having a base, it finds it very difficult to accept that. And one needs a teacher, someone who will be able to, uh, so to say, soothe one's ruffled feathers because it is an experience of such impact that if there is no one around to say, 
and to help and to guide and to lead, one is most likely to turn one's back on it. However, if the mind has been able and is able to experience the uh, pleasant states and the concentrated states and the expansive states of the meditative absorptions, no such dislike arises. A mind which is geared towards that which is pleasant, peaceful, and expansive has very little dislike left. And even when everything turns around upside down through inside, it's only seen as a release and relief from the worldly ideas that we've held so far. Now, when we are able to be very one-pointed, completely one-pointed, in the fourth absorption we experience a very deep peacefulness which changes one's consciousness. It has to. There's no choices. I mean, it's not whether we would like to change our consciousness or not. It just isn't possible not to do it because that kind of peacefulness has never been experienced before. If we were able to know what the mind does when it is asleep and does not dream, because the mind does not constantly dream in sleep. If we were aware and awake to know what that is, what is happening, that could be compared to that state. It's not an asleep state. It is an aware and awake state. But it is a state where the mind is totally at rest. And since we have no idea what it's like, what the mind is like when we're sleeping and not dreaming, we never have any benefit from it for the mind other than the benefit for the body. But here we get the benefit. And it is a complete change of consciousness because the everything that we are holding in our consciousness, even the experiences of the first three absorptions, are totally dropped. There's nothing there. So the change of consciousness is that the consciousness has absolute purity at that time. And it is totally expansive. It is all embracing as far as the peacefulness is concerned. And it doesn't have any limitations because it's pure. And therefore it can reach to the next states, which are the non-material absorptions. They're called non-material because these are states of consciousness which we have never experienced before in our material states. Now we have experienced, as I said already, pleasant sensations, we have experienced joy, we have even experienced contentment, and we have an inkling what it is when the mind is totally at rest. If we ever pay attention to the moment before falling asleep. Now that moment before falling asleep has to be totally peaceful, otherwise we can't fall asleep. Now that moment before falling asleep has 
a certain similarity, it's not identical, but it has a similarity to the total peacefulness. So these fine material absorptions have a certain um, relationship to what we know, except that they are quantitatively and qualitatively much stronger. And they are not dependent on any outer circumstance. So they have a totally uh, independent existence except for our ability to concentrate. That's all. That's the whole dependency they have. The next four have no similarity to anything we know at all. And therefore they are non-material. They have no connection to that which we know in our ordinary state of being. They have... um, they come about through that one-pointedness of the force absorption where the mind is, the, the, our consciousness has no barriers at that time because it's totally pure. So the first one of the non-material absorptions or can be called the fifth meditative absorption is called the infinity of space. In the Buddha's description, that's all it says. Infinity of space. There isn't much one can do with that. In uh, we have um, in the Visuddhimagga in the path of purification, which was not uh, by the Buddha, but by a monk called Buddha Gosa, which was written um, about um, in the in the uh, sixth century of our time. There are descriptions, and they are useless until one has done it. Then they are extremely useful because they are like a reference work. One can look it up. But before one has done it, it's almost impossible to relate to what is described there. And even what I'm describing to you will also be difficult to relate to, although I'm using our... um, ordinary and modern-day language because, again, what one hasn't experienced is very difficult to know. One can only surmise it may be so. I'm trying to give you some idea of it by using the similes of the states of consciousness that everyone is familiar with, but obviously they cannot be identical. If they were, then we wouldn't have to meditate. The infinity of space is a physical aspect again. Now, if you remember the very first one of the um, fine material absorptions comes from the physical. Namely, it has the sensation, the very, very pleasant, very or sometimes overpowering sensation. Here, this is the... But it has nothing to do with the body as such, but it's generated through the physical. This one also starts out with the physical, namely that there is an there is a, um, an appearance as if the body loses its limitations and it expands to infinity. In other words, this body which has borders and limits, which we know, it's that wide and uh, 
hasn't that high, whatever it may be, it loses all that. And it expands and keeps on expanding till there is nothing left of this uh, feeling of the physical body of any uh, shape, size, or form. And the experience is that there is nothing but space. Now, that experience, of course, it's peaceful, it's pleasant, it's interesting, but it is far more than that. It has, uh, as when it is finished, not while it's happening, when it is finished, an immediate result in the realization that within all that space, there wasn't anybody there that could possibly be called me. And because this is a real experience and not just a thought and not just an intellectual uh, understanding or a concept and has nothing to do with what anybody could tell us because it is an absolute experience, there's no doubt about it, that within all that space that exists, although there are forms to be seen, it is still possible to experience that all these forms dissolve into space, particularly one's own. And that is the first inkling and the first glimpse of what it could possibly mean to let go of the ego illusion. And it has to be an experience to let go of the ego illusion. It cannot be something that we try to get because it's just the opposite. It's something that we get rid of. So we can't get it. And it is so often um, handled from the wrong end, as if one can get something, as if through thinking about it or realizing that this is happening or that is happening, that one could possibly lose that ego illusion. One can lose it intellectually, in no time at all. You can lose it in, in half an hour. If I talk about it for half an hour, you can say, well, that's right. But it wouldn't make any difference at all. Somebody comes and steals something from you, if somebody comes and abuses you, if somebody comes and is nasty and doesn't do what you want, it wouldn't have made the slightest difference. Could have talked for hours about non-self and we could have agreed to it. The only thing that makes a difference is the personal experience of it. And this is the first inkling that we get, or I could say it's actually the second inkling, because the first one is in the fourth absorption, when there is hardly any observer left. We already get an idea that it's much nicer to be without this person that always wants something and would like to get something. But here... This is a much stronger experience. This is an experience where that person is actually has disappeared for a few, few moments, however long one stays in that particular um, consciousness, in that particular absorption. At that time, there is nobody there. And although this is not an enlightenment experience, it is certainly the, the understanding of that there is nothing else worthwhile having except the enlightenment experience. 
and only that will bring one to the urgency of practice. Without that, the urgency of practice will constantly disappear amongst all the essential temptations that are available to us in the world, particularly, I would say, maybe in California. <laughs> so the, the difficulties that one is confronted with without an experience of the opposite is, of course, quite understandable. It's our human nature. We are always tempted. With this temptation, we must also remember that when the Buddha was still the Bodhisattva, sitting under the Bodhi tree, moments before his enlightenment, the traditional story says that Mara came. Now Mara is the uh, Pali version of the devil, and uh, he is, his name means the tempter. Now obviously he's not a person uh, with a uh, long tail and spitting fire, but he sits in the heart of everyone. So Mara came and brought his three beautiful daughters. They are called Lopa Dosa Moha, which means greed, hate, and delusion. And they are the most beautiful women on earth. And uh, they came and they said to the Buddha, who was sitting under the Bodhi tree meditating, what are you sitting there, a youth with black hair, sitting under this tree? Why don't you come and play with us? You will have such joy and such pleasure as you've never experienced before. And he said, go away. Leave me alone. I'm meditating. So they said to each other, oh, he doesn't like us. We must be looking too young for him. We'll uh, make ourselves a little older. And uh, and he was already 35 at the time, so they thought maybe if they only looked 15 or 16, it wasn't nice for him. So they made themselves look a little older. And again they came and tried to get him off that meditation seat there. He wouldn't listen. And the third time they came and made themselves yet a little older, and again he wouldn't budge. So they went back to their father, the story says, and said, we've lost this one. And uh, the father was furious and dissolved into red-hot flames. Well, the story is nothing but to tell us that temptation is constantly with us. If the Bodhisattva, moments before his enlightenment, can still be tempted then what can we say about it? Our temptations are practically with us constantly. Not to meditate, to have a nice time. Why should we uh, have uh, such a difficult time sitting there and uh, the knees start hurting and uh, the mind starts uh, thinking? What for? Why shouldn't we go and uh, enjoy ourselves with lopa dosa moha? That changes, that particular difficulty changes to a great extent. Of course, it isn't eliminated until enlightenment, but it changes dramatically when the experience is had of 
realizing that the real peace for the mind, that the real expanded consciousness, the uh, absolute absence of all problems can only be had during that time when the me does not exist. And as we have that experience in this first um, non-material absorption of nobody there, this becomes then a reality. And just as the second fine material absorption is emotional, namely it goes from the pleasant feeling to the joy of having them, so this one is again concerned instead of body expansion, mind expansion. Now obviously when the mind can experience the infinity of space, it has already an infinity of consciousness. However, just as one has to do with the first and second, namely to turn from the pleasant feeling to the happiness, which has arisen at the same time, here we turn our attention from the infinity of the spaciousness, of the complete uh, in all-embracing space to the all-embracing consciousness. Both arise at the same time. It is only that we turn our attention from one to the other, just as we do when the first and second arise, where we turn our attention from pleasant feeling to uh, happiness or joy. Now that again is exactly the same experience, namely that that what knows the knower in us, the awareness, the consciousness, expands to the point where there is nothing except consciousness, but no personal consciousness. Now we have probably heard these words, read them, but they've got to be experienced. Otherwise, it doesn't make any difference to us. It always sounds very nice, sounds very interesting, but one's got to do it. And this Noah, this, um, the one who has the um, ability then to explain the experience, is actually more important to us than our body awareness because we can very easily, at least intellectually and also religiously, say that, well, we're not the body. Um, the body disappears into dust, but there's something else that we are. And we may call it soul, we may call it mind, we may call it something, we may call it um, any name will do. It's something there that we are and that we're going to keep and that will continue. Now, this is hoping against hope. And uh, it is the essence of most teachings that there is something. In fact, I was asked a very nice question just the other day, I think it was in Vancouver, and somebody said, does the Buddha say that there's no self with a small s or with a big s. Well, there's no self with 
either S. It makes no difference which S it is. But we are always hoping against hope that maybe there is something within us that will remain, even if it's only a wisp of a wispy nature, nothing material, solid. So we are not so averse to giving up the idea of myself as the body. That we can handle. But that there's nothing that's me, that's much more difficult to handle. And when we experience, and also much more difficult to understand, but when we experience in that next absorption the infinity of consciousness, it's called that, the base of the infinity of consciousness, when we experience that, there is no doubt left that that what we call my consciousness is just an illusion. There is consciousness, and it's infinite, and it is all-embracing, but it's certainly not personal. And since it is there, and since it is infinite, we can touch upon it and use it, but we don't own it. There's nothing that's mine. Now that is so much easier to accept, understand, and really use for one's path when the experience has happened. And therefore, these um, absorption states are the easy way to enlightenment. They are the easy way to lose one's um, difficulties. One doesn't have to do anything other than concentrate. And that's what all these meditation uh, courses, retreats, and so forth are for, to learn to concentrate. Having had that experience, the um, idea of a self, although still sitting within until one has been able to make the jump, when one has been able to give it up, has been shaken. It has been shaken very seriously. And therefore, to gain and retain insight is much easier. All insight has to be understood to be based on the letting go of the self-illusion. Everything leads up to that. There are many steps on insight, and I will explain all the steps on insight um, tomorrow, because it's also important to know these steps unless you're constantly with a, with a teacher. If you were constantly with a teacher, one step at, at a time would be perfectly sufficient, because then you could come and say, well, now I've un done this, now what next? That would be great. But if you're not constantly with a teacher, it is better to know the path so that one knows where one is at. It is extremely important to know where one is at. The best road map will be useless if one wants to drive to some place, if one doesn't know where on the map one is. You know, like they have in all these big shopping centers, you are here, or in the airports also. 
They make a red dot, you're here. You've got to know where you are, otherwise the road map is useless to you. So when we have the ability to realize where we're at, we also can use the road map then to keep going. Having seeing this, having these experiences in the meditation is the first step. Understanding them is the second step. Now, as I have mentioned already, it is not uncommon that people will say, but I've had that experience, I've had that expansion, but not able to do anything with it because there was no understanding. But we must allow the experience to take place and not start, as when it does happen, not to start thinking about, oh, that's that, oh, that must be this. Well, then the experience is finished. So in all experiences in meditation, in anything, whether it's this or anything else, we must allow this to first take place without the mind interfering and explaining it. But we must also be able, when it is finished, to be able to understand it and explain it. If we can't do that, then again, we haven't had any benefit from it, no matter what kind of experience it may be. Of course, the mind that can get the in, can uh, experience infinity of space and infinity of consciousness is a mind which is at that time limitless, which means it is pliable, soft, expanded. It is no longer concerned with its ordinary limitations. It has the ability or the uh, faculty of going into areas where it has never been before. And going into those areas where it hasn't been before is not an imaginary thing, but it is an actual experience for the mind. Now, having a mind like that, which is expandable, pliable, not unlimited, even though it's only during the meditation period, makes it possible to see universality rather than individuality because both of these experiences are totality experiences and that totality experience brings with it that the personal um, personal limit of oneself one's own protection for oneself one's uh, feeling of um, wanting is greatly reduced because one has seen that there just is existence. There just is space and there is consciousness. And although that is not a constant experience, it's an experience during meditation, one cannot wipe it out. And therefore, it is much easier then to have loving kindness and compassion because one does not at that time, having had that experience, have so many separations. One knows the separations are illusory. Although they are still existing at that time, but one knows that they are an illusion. So it is much, much easier to be giving 
generous, to have the compassion for everyone else, to have joy for other people's pleasures, to have that sympathetic joy, and also to have equanimity, because one knows that what is happening to oneself is such an, not even a drop in universal space or universal consciousness. It cannot even be found. It's so, such an insignificant matter that one does not get upset about it. Neither life nor death, neither having nor not having. Now these things then are no longer a matter of wishful thinking. I mean, one would like to be like that. It's not wishful thinking, but it is a result of having experienced something that gives credence to this um, totality of existence. One must never think that these are enlightenment experiences. These are the necessary experiences to develop the mind so that it can handle anything that goes towards enlightenment and eventually enlightenment. The mind becomes a different sort of entity. It isn't mine. And not being mine, of course, the feeling of this is me is still there. But the knowing that this isn't so has arisen. And one can never question again whether the Buddha really knew what he was talking about because one has experienced it. So the through that totality experience one has lost a lot of this separation feeling from others. And one loses a lot of this um, uh, feeling threatened, uh, feeling worried about oneself and uh, particularly wanting things for oneself. It's not all eliminated because of that. But the knowing that this is really an experience, a true experience, changes one's whole outlook. It is as if one has stood up. When I'm sitting, I can just see a little bit of what's out there. But when I stand up, I will be having a different view. I will see more. So it's having a different view. There's a different viewpoint has arisen. Everything looks a little different. The next one of the um, non-material absorptions is called the base of nothingness. And that's all the Buddha says about it. Now, we have our doubts that that's really all he said about it. Because it's either got lost or disappeared somehow or other. It's highly unlikely that a teacher who went into such detail about everything else would just leave one with those words so that one actually has to um, do it sort of blank. And this is also one of the reasons why this is becoming a lost art. And this is a great pity because this is what every mind wants. There isn't a single mind that wouldn't like peace, quiet, expansion, inner joy, the um, 
more understanding of the universe. Everybody wants that. Every mind yearns for it. There isn't a single mind that wants to sit and have discursive thinking and once in a while watch the breath. Nobody wants that. <laughs> Everybody wants to do this. And that's why it's such a very great pity that it is becoming a lost art. And in the West, not even lost, never arose, as far as I know, and in the East, becoming lost. Still in existence, but also getting lost. Most of it is most likely due to the fact that the explanations, the, exp the uh, uh, instructions of the Buddha are so limited, so non-existent, one could say, that it is very difficult to find one's way in it unless one makes a real um, uh, practice of it. There are, as I said before, instructions to be found in the path of purification, uh, which is a very uh, enormous reference work. It's very thick. Um, but most people don't even know about it or don't read it. It's very difficult to read. So the teachers that can teach this, the people who can do it, are becoming less and less. And yet, everybody's mind yearns for that. And this is the reason why people come to meditation. They want to get some peace and quiet finally. They know that going on holiday hasn't done it for them. So maybe this will do it. And uh, eventually it will. As the mind becomes more uh, habituated towards concentrating, it does have that, every mind has that ability. There's nobody who cannot do this. But there are lots and lots and lots of people who don't practice enough to do it. There are very few that do. But everybody can. This is a nothing but a progressive explanation of what all our minds are capable of. There is no special mind needed. There is nothing but universal consciousness. There are no special minds. We've all got access. And that's why we're having a mind and a consciousness, because we're having access to that universal consciousness. So all of us, everyone, is capable of this. It's a matter of practice. That's all. And those people who practice year after year without getting to those state, states are really to be admired because it is hard work to sit and try to bring the mind back again and again as you have noticed in the past few days. So every single human mind that is what we call normal Buddha said none of us are normal we're all, we're all deluded but what we call normal is capable of this and not only capable but is wanting to do this that's actually what we want and because of that we can see that this is the path of meditation not because the Buddha said so not because the Buddha did so but because our own minds 
or wanting to go in that direction. That's all we really want. So we may even have had moments of peacefulness when the mind became concentrated. The base of nothingness. Well, we have to distinguish between emptiness and nothingness. I think the word nothingness denotes that there's absolutely nothing there. But the word emptiness denotes that whatever there is is empty. And that's more um, telling of what we're on about. If you look at this room right now, it's got cushions and people and chairs and all sorts of things in it. And at this point in time, we think all that stuff's important. Well, it is for us at the moment, isn't it? But then somebody comes along and takes all this stuff out. And then we see that the place is empty. So when we get to... It's not that we see nothing. We see that it's empty. And this is often, very often misunderstood what this nothingness is supposed to be. What we experience in that particular um, state of meditation, because the mind is universal now, it's a universal consciousness, it is infinite. It's an infinite moving. It's all moving. And what one actually can experience is what we nowadays would say, that there isn't a solid uh, building block in the universe, not a single solid building block. Everything are energy particles coming together and falling apart. That's not the way the Buddha said it, but it's exactly the same thing. What we can see in that expansive consciousness when it takes a look at what there really is, is nothing but vibration. Absolutely nothing else. And within that vibration, nobody there. These vibrations do come together and make people. And they do come together and make animals and houses and trees and flowers and oceans and they fall apart again and they come together again. And because they're doing it so fast, they give the appearance of solidity. But at that time in the meditation, there's nothing but vibration. Now, that is a very strong insight-producing experience. These particular uh, non-material absorptions have really the strongest insight Um, aspects one cannot deny the experience but the mind is so at ease and so peaceful that the experience is perfectly acceptable usually the understanding of there's absolutely nothing and that's what I've got to live with most people don't want any part of it they'd rather not meditate. And if they have to meditate, if they think they want to meditate, they'd rather not get quite that far. And that's quite all right. It's okay. Most people don't really want to get that far because it makes a lie to everything we have done. 
we have been chasing our own tails. We've been chasing the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, which doesn't exist, and we've been chasing it at high speed and getting sick in the process and chasing something that doesn't exist. And so knowing about that, most people don't really want to know. But when the mind is so at ease and so calm and so peaceful, it has nothing to gain and nothing to lose. It's got everything it wants. That's all the mind wants, wants to have peace, absolute peace. It doesn't want to worry about a thing. It wants to have joy and peace and happiness, and it has all that. That experience is a relief and a release because now the mind knows it doesn't ever have to chase after anything again. There is nothing there except vibrations. It's great. But only the mind that has that kind of faculty will, will accept it in that way. Everyone else will say, yes, but... And then come all the ideas. What about me? And what about them? And what about this? Yes. Naturally, that's all there. That's quite all right to think that way. But the mind that has that kind of experience doesn't really need to think that way. It has experienced it, and it is um, like letting go of a great burden. It's nothing to do and nowhere to go. Everything is just happening. It's coming apart and coming together again. It's all vibrating. And our scientists know about that. They write books about it, theses about it. They get Nobel Prizes for it. But they don't realize that they themselves are included in that. If they did, they'd be enlightened. We may not write books or theses about it, but we can experience it. And nothing can take the place of the personal experience. There is nothing. We can think as long as we wish. It won't do it. We've got to experience it. Now this base of nothingness can again be compared uh, to the third of the um, fine material absorptions, which was the first state of um, contentment and uh, peacefulness. Now here in, this, in the base of nothingness, the mind which has the ability to be at peace will come to a uh, very um, peaceful state because there's nothing that can be searched for anymore. It sees that also at that time that because this movement, the vibration, which is the essence of impermanence. Impermanence is not just that we're going to die. That's part of it. But the essence of impermanence is the constant vibration in everything that exists and actually being the base of everything that exists, the constant vibration, which is the essence of impermanence, shows us also that there is nothing of significance 
because if it's all coming and going, coming together, falling apart, vibration, what is significant? Find something that's significant within that is impossible. This is actually having experience that can bring to the door of liberation through understanding impermanence. The door of liberation is they called, uh, through impermanence is called the signless liberation, which means there is absolutely nothing to be seen which has any sign or mode of uh, consistency and uh, nothing that can be formed which doesn't fall apart. But if it doesn't that do that, it at least shows that the vibrating aspect of the universe has been an experience and therefore everything else takes second place. The fourth one, the next one of the non-material absorptions is called neither perception nor non-perception. Also a not understandable title and it has a very um, uh, distinct uh, relationship to the fourth absorption, which was only one-pointedness and complete peace. Because this one is even, is the same kind of peace without the observer. There is no, no perception or non-perception, which means that the mind is totally aware of the peacefulness, but it doesn't perceive anything that has the aspect of that so it doesn't have an observer anymore it is only there without anyone observing what's there it is uh, an entry into what is called the ninth jhana or usually called niroda and um, which is only available to non-returners and enlightened ones, arahants, which uh, where people can sit as if they were dead for an, a maximum of seven days. And uh, because there's no uh, feelings, there's no uh, perception, there's no thinking, there's only the still, the life flame is still going. However, the other eight which I've described are available to anyone. It has nothing to do with whether one is enlightened or not. But they are the entry into real understanding. Now, the neither perception or non-perception is hardly possible to say anything about it because there's no perceiving of anything. So when one cannot perceive anything, there's nothing one can say about it. The only thing that one can possibly say in retrospect is that it is a total peacefulness. That gives rise to an understanding also. It gives rise to the understanding that all that goes on in our mind, the perception, the feelings, and the mental formations, and the sense, uh, sense consciousness, all those things which are going on, are dukkha. It's much better, much more peaceful without them. And yet, anyone who wants peace and happiness is looking 
to have peace for myself. And that's not possible. One can only have peace when myself is not the issue. So when one experiences neither perception nor non-perception, it becomes in retrospect, not while any of this is happening, retrospect quite clear that the body is dukkha. We know that already. Gets sick, dies, has pains, aches, back aches, knee aches, colds, sniffles, everything, toothaches, has all sorts of problems that we know already. But now we know also that the mind is dukkha. That too is dukkha, no matter what it thinks. Even perception is dukkha. Perception is nothing but the naming of things. Even that is dukkha. Because here we have experienced a state which has the ultimate in peacefulness and there was no one perceiving anything. Now, the Buddha said like this, there is suffering but no sufferer. There's the deed but no doer. There's the path but no one to enter. There's Nibbana but no one to attain it. Which means any of the states which we really are wishing for ourselves have to, can only be experienced when self is no longer in the picture. Obviously, with these um, absorption states, self reappears right away when we're finished with the meditation. And self says, oh, that was, I had a very nice meditation. Self is very happy about it. So these are only the means for the complete and total insight, but they're the necessary means. The Buddha, when he was the Bodhisattva, the prince, Siddhartha, went to two teachers in the forest. And the first teacher taught him from the first to the seventh absorption. And uh, said then that this was all there was to be learned. And this was the highest attainment for anyone. And he wanted the... uh, the prince to become a teacher with them and share the students and so forth. And the, the prince Siddhartha said, uh, no, that's not what I'm after. Although this is a wonderful attainment, when I come out of it, I know Dukkha again. Went to another teacher, taught him the eighth absorption. Next teacher again said, this is all there is. Now you can be a teacher instead of me. You can have all the students. I'll go. You're better than I am at this. And again the prince said, No, this is a great attainment, and I'm very grateful and very happy to have learned it. And uh, I know this is a path, but it's not what I'm after. When I come out, I have Dukkha again. And then he went, and then he couldn't find another teacher because nobody was teaching insight. Everybody was teaching calm. In India then, and maybe even today, there's a lot of that still being taught in India. I don't know. 
um, it's possible. But India is not a Buddhist country, so I don't know what is being taught. But then he couldn't find a teacher, so he set himself down under the famous Bodhi tree and went into these absorptions from 1 to 8 and from 8 down to 1. And having the mind prepared in such a way and having a, the understanding of what these absorptions meant, he then attained the end of all dukkha. He then was able to formulate the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path, which was the insight to end all dukkha. But in order to end all dukkha and to gain that kind of insight, we need those steps on the way to prepare us for this dramatic, breathtaking and enormously impactful change in our viewpoint, in our attitude, in our standpoint. When that is not a previous experience, it is very difficult to attain the understanding that is necessary. When the Buddha was on his deathbed, he again went into the absorptions, up to the eighth, down to the first, and he died between the fourth and the fifth. The reason that was known was because his left-hand disciple, Mahamogalana, was very psychic and could tell that that was happening. So the, uh, we even have that additional um, great benefit when we learn our meditations while we're still healthy and well that when it comes to the end of life and the body is uh, decrepit and, uh, and painful and ready to die, the mind can still have that kind of uh, very great um, benefit and peacefulness. It doesn't have to die in a state of turmoil. So that is an additional benefit. So we, we know from, our, from the Buddha's life that this is what his practice was. And we know from his teaching that this is, whenever he spoke about meditation, that's what he taught. Nothing else. He never taught momentary concentration, nor did he teach neighborhood concentration. These are commentarial later editions some of them have been canonized, have been taken into the Pali Canon, but they're never suggested, even with the slightest um, hint of a suggestion, that they were taught by the Buddha. These commentarial editions were put in later by other monks, and they have been very helpful to many people. But if we go back down to our fundamentalist teaching, that's what we find. And it is something that brings a great deal of benefit and joy to anyone who can do it and is willing to practice enough to do it. And insight is inevitable. One cannot do this, these absorptions, without gaining insight one would have to be absolutely dull. And a dull person is also very incapable 
or I would think completely incapable of going into the absorptions because we have to have a very concentrated mind for that. So that should be enough for right now and give you some time to ask some questions if you like. Yes. That's a very good contemplation. That's the exact words to use. Those are the exact words to use. <clears throat> and I, I'm not, uh, I'm quite serious about it. There was a, a great sage in southern India who died around 1950, uh, Ramana Maharshi, lived in Tiruvannamalai, and that was his way of teaching. Just find out who am I. Now, he did not teach step by step as the Buddha did. He was not that kind of a teacher. But he was a self-realized sage. And uh, those were the words he used, who am I, to find out. That is a very valuable and very important way of getting in there and getting a little more knowledge of it. Ramana Maharshi, but uh, the books are, they're interesting, they're very nice, but in my own personal experience, uh, that's all I can talk about, <laughs> they um, uh, do not give a step-by-step -step instruction on how to do it. There the Buddha is unique. He gives an exact how-to, step-by-step, and that is missing Ramana Maharshi never thought of himself as a teacher. The people around him tried to make him a teacher. He never thought of himself as a teacher. He certainly was a self-realized. And as happens that he used those words, who am I? Use it, contemplate on it. Find out what can you find inside. I will uh, discuss that also more in detail uh, when I speak about the progression of insight, the steps of insight. We come to that, too. Yes. Mm -hmm. Have you got an answer yet? <laughs> yes. What? It doesn't mean anything. Ah. She's elderly. Uh -huh. And so she's an example of a, of a being who is losing her consciousness, although she still has feelings and sensations. Mm -hmm. And uh, what is your, what, or what is the Buddhist view of someone like that? I mean, her, all I do for her, can do for her, is love her. Mm -hmm. Yes.
Well, it certainly should give you a great deal of urgency for your practice because you're seeing the, uh, in, in front of you the example what happens without practice, not to everybody naturally, no. but uh, it's, uh, it's, it gives you an urgency. And in order to uh, have a more, more uh, equanimity feeling about the uh, situation, maybe you can remember her years when she wasn't like that, when she had a good life. So you can remember many years of that, I should think. So then at the end of life, this is happening. Well, some people have very great uh, physical difficulties at end of life. And this will show you that the Buddha's words that birth, decay, disease, and death are our um, lot, and they all are great dukkha, and there's nothing to be done except to get out. But that doesn't mean to die. To get out means to become enlightened. Now, if you can see that, you will see that this is for you the spur. And the Buddha had a, given an example of um, people are like four different kinds of horses. The first kind you only have to whisper to, and it will uh, do as you want it to do. The second kind, you have to pull the reins and the bit, and then it will do as you want it to do. The third kind, you have to show the whip. And the fourth kind, you have to actually use the whip. Now, people are like that, he said. The first kind, all you have to uh, do is to mention that there is birth, decay, disease, and death, and that that's dukkha, and they will start practicing immediately. <laughs> the, the, sec the second kind, where you have to pull on the bit, they have to actually see it. They have to see sick people, dead people. Uh, they have to see that even birth is dukkha. They have to see that in other people around them, you know. And then they'll start practicing. The third kind, it has to happen in their family. Somebody in their family has to be very ill or very uh, debilitated, as you're experiencing. And the fourth kind, it has to happen to themselves. And when one has these possibilities and sees this happen, then the understanding can arise. Now, obviously, not all horses are um, trainable. There are horses that um, won't listen to anything. 
there are people too like that. Uh, but if that happens, the, f- the understanding must arise that being a human being is dukkha. It doesn't matter what kind of dukkha. This is a certain kind of dukkha that you're experiencing with your mother, which is uh, regrettable, but it is one kind. Everybody's got something. So here we can then see what is there to be done. We have no uh, protection. We are always on the verge of having this dukkha. I mean, some crazy driver comes along, hits the car, and you become a paraplegic. So, where's the protection? It's not possible to protect oneself. So then we can see nothing but practice to gain freedom. And that can be, for you, a very valuable experience. And in the meantime, of course, what you can do for your mother is just love, as you say. There's nothing else you can do um, other than care for her in some way, which you must know. Um, And if you feel very sad about it, that she's happening to her, also remember that this is your attachment that is happening and not wanting to let go because this is someone, it's your mother, I mean someone too close to you. And then remember how she did have good years in her life, that this has not been all her life like that. She's had many good years, and that is also her good karma, because she has lived uh, in an affluent society and has had a good years, you know. People are very starving in many countries and very difficult. So it should bring about a real urgency. It's called Samvega in Pali, and it is one of the steps of insight, and not at the beginning, somewhere in the middle. Yes, well, this, uh, this consciousness, you know, at death, it may even change again. It may not be like that, what you're experiencing now, because death is a very uh, profound change, and at that moment, the whole consciousness may change again. Yes, um, that would so be good. Very. Yes. Does she understand what you're saying? But if she is in a sort of a dream state, she can't be very, uh, not very suffering for her. She's very, um, um, I think it's a lot of neurotic things from her uh-huh. life are just kind of becoming very full-blown. She's uh-huh. very anxious, she's very paranoid, she's very frightened. Uh-huh. She has delusions about things. Uh-huh. So it's not, it's not that she's in a very childlike mm. Not like that. Well, at the death time, it is very important 
to remind the dying person of any and all the good things they have ever done in their life so that they can possibly, if she can still hear you at the time and understand anything, that you may be able to instill in her that uh, um, consciousness of the goodness that she has had because that will uh, direct the, her mind in a good way, in a good direction. And that is something to to tell her that she brought you up well, that you're grateful to her and these that sort of things and whatever else you know about her life, that she's done a, made a success of whatever she's doing. And even if she can't hear you, still say it, still say those things. And that is, um, that is a way um, to bring her mind to a good state. And even now, it could be helpful. I don't know. Well, I'm sure because you might otherwise not even sit with her and talk to her all the time. Mm -hmm. Certainly. Yeah. <laughs> what else? Yes. It's important to, um, to practice to teach her consistently. Well, it's helpful, yes. It's helpful. But um, most people don't have that uh, opportunity. So it is in that case then uh, very helpful to check back with the teacher at least like twice or three times a year whether, whether it's going the right way and whether the understanding is happening. Otherwise it's um, sort of nebulous, isn't it? Pick one. <laughs> it might have been ways that I cannot go out of this country. I'm stuck in America. Okay. Well, it's big enough. <laughs> Well, try that Chinese temple I was telling you about. I'll give you the address. I really don't know what their teacher is like, but they're very nice people. I'll give you the address, huh? And uh, they're very dedicated practitioners. They really do it. So I think you might like it. You can try it out. It's not far. Hmm? Yes. I 
I don't think there's a controversy because I don't think there's any, anybody to controvert. I don't think, don't think there's anybody around who says it shouldn't be done that way, what you're just describing. I don't think there's a controversy. I don't know that anybody is saying any different. I am, yes, but I'm not around usually. <laughs> and I'm certainly not going to get into a controversy. <laughs> The commentaries. Yes, we have a lot of uh, commentaries and sub-commentaries that are can canonical material, and uh, they're still the commentary and sub-commentary, but they're not canonical. They are canonical, but not by the Buddha. They're certainly canonical because they were uh, accepted at the uh, third um, uh, great. Um, um, no? When the, the third great uh, convocation of Arahants and uh, anything afterwards was no longer accepted, but at that time that was still accepted. So uh, there isn't any controversy because nobody does anything else. As I said, it's a lost art or a dying art, I should say. It's not lost yet. It's a dying art. And uh, you can see it's quite clearly like this. Everybody is trying to keep their mind on the breath. Somehow or some way. Well, that's supposed, that is samadhi. That's going to samadhi. If you ever get there. If you ever get, keep the mind on the breath. Okay? It's as simple as that. If you, everybody sits down to meditate, they are told to keep the mind on the breath. Right? Well, that goes to samadhi. Right? Then, if you actually do keep the mind on the breath, the whole string of absorptions happens. As the whole string of absorptions happens, the consciousness changes and insight becomes an absolute uh, inevitable progression. And this is what the Buddha taught, for instance, in this sutta which I'm describing, the transcendental dependent arising, as a progressive state. First dukkha, then faith, then joy, then the um, absorptions, and the next step is, the, uh, is insight, which I will explain. And the other way of doing it, which has been taught and has actually come from Burma, and because they were very active in their teaching, it has spread a lot, uh, is that not to do the absorptions, but to just get momentarily concentrated and then realize all the different steps of insight. Well, I'm sure that the one who inaugurated that teaching must have become enlightened that way, otherwise he wouldn't teach it. I mean, it would be, a, then he would be fooling people, no? So if the one would have been Mahasi Sayadaw, so he would have uh, become enlightened that way. But that's the way he teaches, or has taught, now he's dead. And uh, it's not to be found in the Buddha's teaching, but it is, uh, as I say, the, the commentaries do mention momentary and neighborhood concentration. Kanaka and uh, Upachara Samadhi. It's not to be found in the suttas. So the uh, inside path, which I will des describe uh, tomorrow, uh, brings all these different aspects with it and can be done like that, but it's hard and difficult and the mind objects and resists. Uh, to do it the only, only that the advantages. Well, the advantages which are being 
uh, advertise, that's the wrong word, but I can't think of anything else, um, are that it's supposed to go quicker. But that's not the case. It's just the other way around. This is quicker. Because the mind changes so dramatically that the, the insight just has to arise with it. When, as I said before, one would have to be very dull if that wasn't the case. And um, so, the, the, yes, it's supposed to go quicker. And also there is this um, uh, idea about, I think, I mean, I haven't asked anybody, but I think it's about that this is very difficult, that the other way is easier. It's just the other way around. This is easy. The other way is difficult. <laughs> this is the easy way. This is a lazy man's way to enlightenment. <laughs> the title of a book, but not a very good book. Yeah. So you're here for a week. Mm. And then I'm going to be gone. Everyone else that is teaching that I know of, not only in the United States, but um, in any, any, any Western country I've been in, is teaching either from Thai or Burmese practice, which is the other way, the military approach. So what do we do next week? I mean, you know, like, that's the thing. We're learning this approach, and I can, and from my own experience, I can see that, yeah, I've gotten calm and inside and really collected and really peaceful doing the other approach, but you're right, this is an awful lot more fun. <laughs> and that makes me more excited about practicing. But I keep coming into questions every day that I want to ask you, and after a week, I mean, where do you turn? The teachers that you can talk to around here, there's some really wonderful teachers around this area, but for whatever reason, they, they not only, the, the very best I've gotten is we don't deal with that. And at the very, you know, like on a personal level, you have to talk to somebody else. This isn't in my experience, mm -hmm. which is, you know, you can't ask someone to teach them they don't know. That's right. And on the worst level, this isn't the way we go about it in this practice. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've actually heard some people say there's too great a danger of getting attached to the uh, joyful state, so it's best not to get involved in, in the first mm -hmm. place. You know, well, that's... Have the inside state. Yeah. Well, that's a rationalization, you know. I said this already yesterday or the day before. It's much better than being attached to ice cream and sex. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the question is, do you have any suggestions about, you know, how to, how to get guidance along this path next week, next month? Well, uh, yes. Uh, what I usually suggest is this, that if you actually get into the States, as you know, and know them and keep going and have questions uh, which you can't find an answer for, you'll just have to write to me and I'll answer you by letter. I answer every letter I get and um, because I get an awful lot of letters and I don't have a secretary so I have to answer them all myself, I'm not, um, you know, sort of inviting people to write, but, which I used to do, um, I've learned my lessons. But I want every serious practitioner that finds difficulty in getting answers to particular questions to write because I'm, this is my, my only um, raison d'etre, my only reason for being is to be able to help people to gain these, um, uh, the benefits of the meditative states. So you're welcome to write. Okay. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> while I'm still here. <laughs> you talked about um, how the breath becomes very fine and all these things during the state. Today, when I was making the transition from the PT, from the pleasant sensations to the joy, I found my heart, and may, maybe it may have not been an actual, from an external viewpoint, but from an internal viewpoint, it started going very hard and very fast. Mm. And I said, hold on, that must be wrong. And I stopped the whole process, of course, and then I said that. Mm. And I'm wondering if... That you is got, got excited. Yeah, you got excited. Mm-hmm. No, just, just t- take point? it in your stride. Yeah, just take it in stride and say, well, this is what my mind's doing, okay? But, it's, yeah. but if the excitement leads into the next state, that's okay too? Yeah, but uh, uh, if you are excited, then the joy will not be pure joy. So the excitement was actually blocking your way. So when you had, you were going there, but you were, you, were you having the joy or was it just on the verge of or what? Well, it's like, okay, last night it didn't happen that way because it was the first time that it really swept me away. Right. And then today, as soon as it started happening, the excitement came dashing in. All right. Oh, great, here we go again. All right, okay. And I, I, I didn't let it just go. I said, oh, I must have done something. Being yeah. the observer, I'd love to get rid of as much as I would the discursive mind the rest of the time. <laughs> uh, said, ah, you made a mistake. That's right, go you did. That's right, you did, because you got excited about, aha, now we're getting it again. You just have to let it slide, fl- uh, flow, not slide, flow. You don't, you don't barge in there and say, hey, there it is. So is it better at that time to stop and start over again? Yeah, yeah, yes. And were you able to get away without the excitement then? And no, I, I didn't get away again to that point. I, I got to some very interesting other places, really expansionary, just like mm-hmm. feeling totally expanded. Mm. But um, every every time I get near it, really the observer is almost as much fun as the discursive mind because mm. although all the talk that's going on from the observer is about the state, it's not talking about my home or mm. work or anything else, it's, it's just as much of a pain. You want him to shut up already. Mm. Uh, so every time it started getting near that again, he would jump in and say, now don't do this and don't do that. Mm. And so I eventually just dropped him and just, because it was easy to get into the state of really mm. peaceful expansion and feeling wonderful that way. I mm. think that that happened. Okay, that's fine. Um, but uh, the observer is only supposed to talk when the whole thing is finished. He's not supposed to say anything. So... And the observer is the ego. Because look at me, mom, no hands. Huh? I mean, wonderful what I can do. So uh, you'll have to just sort of uh, uh, give the observer a bit of a, a kick or a clap on the head and say, well, now be quiet. That's just ego. So mm. when you're working with the other, you go back to the breath. It's the observer, what do you do to get rid of sense? When you're on the breath and he's talking? When you're on the breath and your mind starts thinking, you notice the thinking and go back to the breath. Hmm. Just notice the observing as well and go back to the... Uh, well, uh, at that time, the whole thing is bound up with the observer. Yeah. The observer is observing the breath. Huh? But when the mind starts going, becoming one with the breath, then there's no...